The Real Chemistry Podcast connects the dots between our guests and the innovative work they do to show up and shape the future of healthcare. Why? So you, the listener, are encouraged to join us on our relentless pursuit to make the world a healthier place for all. Some may call it idealism. We call it Real Chemistry. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of Real Chemistry and the host of the Real Chemistry Podcast. This is the first Real Chemistry Podcast with guests, and I think you're in for a treat. Today, we have Andre Blackman, who is the founder and CEO of Onboard Health. And we have my esteemed colleague, Abby Hayes, who is a practice leader of our DE&I client engagement practice. And we're going to talk today about, uh, I'm going to I'm going to read the mission right off of Onboard Health's page because I think it's great. Andre says, we empower organizations who have a lens on building equitable health innovation through powerful, inclusive teams and cultures of impact. We believe that incorporating intentional diversity, inclusion, and belonging across an organization's leadership and culture is fundamental to creating real, valuable solutions. That will be a little bit of a tease as to what we focus on today and a little bonus getting to hear what both Abby and Andre listened to during the pandemic. Tune in. All right. Well, welcome, Andre, and welcome, Abby. I have been looking forward to doing this episode for a long time. And as I told you in our pre-prep, this is our very first, well, I can't say it's really the first. It's the first with guests, uh, the Real Chemistry Podcast, so our evolution from the what to know. Same goodness, same focus on uh, healthcare innovation, uh, same great guests. And I can't think of a better couple to bring on Abby, my colleague, has done uh, not only guest hosted this show, but also has been a guest on the show. Andre, you and I were talking. We connected almost 10 years ago to the day. Uh, we believe it might have been at All Hat. So David Armano and team, if you're listening in, Richard uh, Binghammer, then, you know, it was a match made in heaven. And uh, as we mentioned up front, we're going to talk a little bit about Andre and the work he does my colleague, Abby, the work she does, because it's both critically important, especially at this day and age. And so with that, I do want to, I like to get our guests familiar or, or the people listening in familiar with sort of your backstory. So Andre, why don't we start with you and tell us a little bit about how you get involved in talent and launching Onboard Health. And maybe while you're doing that, you know, give the, the listeners a little bit more of a taste of what Onboard Health is. I read your mission today. I love it. And it's, it's actually really pretty cool. So let's let you jump in and, and get us started. Absolutely, Aaron. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. So great to be part of the inaugural kind of newer version and new brand. So really happy to dive on in. Um, you know, a little bit of my backstory has really everything to do with, you know, what the future of health is going to look like. Um, you know, really just kind of spent most of my career, um, you know, at the intersection of public health, healthcare, technology, innovation, uh, digital, right? You know, so so most of my entire career or most of my career actually has been really focused in this kind of landscape, right? And so, you know, really kind of getting things started around the, the golden age of social media and um, and how digital strategy and communications are really getting started and just infusing that, um, you know, with public health and healthcare and seeing how communications reaching new audiences, um, you know, building community health initiatives, you know, on, on the kind of frameworks of this kind of new landscape. That's how really everything got started. Um, you know, blogging at Pulse and Signal um, at, at, you know, back way back in the day of 2007. And really, you know, the past, you know, 15 or so years just really dove right on into the healthcare innovation landscape, turned Pulse and Signal into 
um, you know, consultancy. So once again, you know, just kind of continuing on with the wave around social media and digital strategy and really kind of built an, an amazing ecosystem of individuals who are leading the future. Um, people like Susanna Fox, who, you know, when, when we first connected, was over at the Pew Internet Project, leading a lot of their health programming and things of that nature. And everybody referred to her kind of, you know, insights and research for every kind of project um, known to the future of health. And so just kind of building great relationships um, over the years. And because of that, because of being able to get connected with so many amazing people in the companies and seeing a lot of the startups that were tackling things like mental health and, um, you know, kind of behavioral health as a whole, you know, really kind of starting to see a new shift, right? You know, as we were looking at this merging of um, the social determinants of health, right? What are the things that are happening outside of the hospital um, and these kind of, you know, healthcare systems? And that's when I had this amazing opportunity in 2016 um, to give the commencement address at my alma mater, the, the School of Public Health at the University of Maryland. And that's when I really started thinking about the workforce, right? And how the workforce is going to need to be uh, equipped to better uh, for this kind of coming intersection of, um, you know, the social determinants, healthcare innovations, you know, traditional medicine. Um, so looking at how the workforce was going to need to be equipped to better, but also how, how it's going to need to look different, right? You know, if we're talking about the social determinants, we're talking about things like food sustainability, the built environment, right? You know, this is where our, our colleague Jane Serson Khan talks all the time, you know, where we, where we live, work and play and pray, right? All these kind of different things that happen, you know, in our communities. And so, you know, what are our communities made up of? People, right? And people that are, you know, representing a number of communities and, and uh, populations um, as well, right? And so this is where that kind of lens on diversity, equity, inclusion really played a big role in me thinking about how the future of health is going to need to be built, particularly from a talent and workforce perspective. And that's when, you know, Onboard Health really kind of came together. Um, really, our mission is to, to focus on, you know, um, you know, creating a more diverse and inclusive workforce ecosystem to power the future of health, um, because it only makes sense that, you know, if we're building these solutions and products that they involve um, everyone. Well, thank you for that. And I, I love the journey. Not everyone's journey I talk to, including myself, uh, does not always make as much sense as your journey has. Thank you for mentioning Jane. She did reconnect us. Uh, and she, I think, is on both of our advisory boards, which is great yeah. since she's such a, a great connector. We have our Trinidadian friend here, and this is one other connection, speaking of Abby Hayes. And so, Abby, I know some of the guests may have heard your backstory, but let's give a little bit of a similar, uh, how did you get here and what got you interested in healthcare? And obviously now leaning much more into the DE&I side of that, working with our clients. Cool. So I always say that healthcare is in my blood because my late father was both a nephrologist and immunologist. Um, he actually started the first nonprofit in Trinidad that gave free dialysis care to people um, who had end-stage kidney disease, which at the time that he had founded it was not only new to the country, and he actually brought the first machine into the island. Um, for me, that was like my front row seat, if you will, to health equity work without even realizing that that's what it was. Um, and when he passed away, my mother picked up the mantle and truly built that organization into what it is today, 40 years on. So at a very young age, you know, I was witnessing my mother writing brochure copy to educate people on not only why you should care about your kidneys, but all of the you know risk factors that play a role in kidney health. Um, so I always kind of had a lens into that. And even though 
I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be Christina Amanpour. I went to USC and got the degree because I have a love of storytelling and adventure. I kind of fell into healthcare comms just because I have the love for science and I was exposed to healthcare from like from my very, very early childhood. So I spent 20 plus years doing healthcare comms. Um, but the interesting thing is, which is why last year's inflection point is so important, every time we thought about engaging communities of color or any group that was underrepresented, more often than not, it was a bolt-on or an add-on. And that, to me, never really sat well because there was just so much work that we could be doing as an industry. Um, so, you know, last year, when we all went through our Great Awakening, I had a conversation with Jim Weiss and Jen Gottlieb, our CEO and global president, and basically said to them, this type of work is no longer going to be the bolt-on or the nice-to-have or the checkbox. The imperative now is dramatically different. And, you know, I've had the lived experience as a Black woman, see, witnessing what happens. I grew up with it. I've been immersed in it. And I was like, I'm here for it because there was no better time than the present. And I'm a firm believer in not only giving back, but most importantly, establishing a legacy. So that's a little bit about how I got to where I am. And I'm just so pleased that, you know, my childhood and that experience kind of given me the right headset to do the work that we're doing today. Well, you just lit a light bulb for me, Abby, and thank you. And um, this is relevant, particularly for Andre and me, as we were joking about the growing up in the social and digital early days, right? I think going back to 2006, 2007, hanging out at South by Southwest early in the 2000s. And what you just said was, and I don't pretend to mean that they're at the same level, but the same impact potentially. And that is that digital and social, whenever you thought about marketing or advertising was always a bolt on, right? Everyone always sort of came to people like Andre and me at the end of the end of the, the end of the sort of journey and said, oh, by the way, can you put this on social? Or can you think of something that, you know, would be meaningful digitally? And I hadn't ever thought about the DE&I piece. And I love the fact that it actually is becoming that thread. Like digital now, we don't even think about it. Everything is digital, right? Everything now is becoming DE&I because it's so critical. And that's a good segue to this next question. And that is that diversifying pipelines has always been a priority, or at least I think people have paid lip service to it. I think they know that it's the right thing to do. Um, we're now living in this post-George Floyd world, right? It's a mandate. And this is apropos because we're coming up on Juneteenth, I think probably the second time most people that look like me in the world actually know what a Juneteenth is. And I'm proud of the fact that we work at a company that's giving us it off as a holiday for the second time. We're taking that Friday off. But let's talk a little bit more about how have your worlds changed and what are prospective employers looking for? So I'll start with that directed at you, Andre, and then we'll talk about sort of how both of your worlds change. And I'll, I'll loop you in on that one, Abby. Yeah, absolutely, Aaron. I mean, and, and kudos again for, you know, real chemistry for, you know, making these kinds of shifts and changes internally at the culture um, and things of that nature. But yeah, last year was, as Abby mentioned, a, a great awakening um, to your point. And I'm glad you kind of mentioned, you know, at least the lip service piece, right? Because you know, while it was mentioned quite a bit, especially over the past few years, um, it was always that kind of, you know, um, feel good, nice to have, um, you know, what can we do to just kind of, you know, make sure that people think that from an employer standpoint that we're doing the right thing, right? But then I, I think all of us saw, you know, recent or in recent years, you know, various reports coming out from giant tech companies like Google and things of that nature, a very minuscule 
uh, amount of representation and a lot of like, you know, not really moving the needle um, in a lot of different ways in, in their kind of workforce and things of that nature. And, you know, figuring out, okay, like how, do, how does this kind of work with what, we, what we're saying and what we're going to need? And, you know, the whole aspect of diversity in tech has been going on and raging for a number of years. Um, and then last year happened, right? The George Floyd murder just really just ripped open everything. And, and also, you know, with George Floyd's murder, there was the pandemic that we were all going through, right? So there was this kind of, you know, just kind of cauldron of things that were stirring together um, at the same time, a lot of unrest, a lot of confusion, a lot of frustration, right? Um, you know, a lot of shifts in the workplace. And so for me, this was a time where I personally um, was challenged on how, you know, Andre needed to show up differently, you know, just across the board in, in health and all the different things that I've been thinking about. But this was definitely a moment where, you know, as Abby mentioned, the whole piece around health equity, right? As we were seeing from the pandemic, right? And as we were tracking the trajectory, right? You know, for those of us who understand the public health and epidemiology kind of trends, right? You know, oftentimes, traditionally, you know, the further south you go in the United States, the wider the equities, the wider the disparities, right? And so as, you know, we saw the pandemic, you know, coming down toward the South, as soon as it hit places like Louisiana, we saw, you know, mortality rates start to skyrocket, right? So that was one element that we saw from just a public health lens with the pandemic. And then the racial injustice piece, um, you know, with George Floyd really just kind of created this firestorm. And so for me, this was a great opportunity for me to, figure out and do some due diligence on how I needed to step up um, and be very clear about, you know, how I wanted to show up, but also with our work at Onboard Health. At this point, you know, we are a few years in, had a lot of great sentiment from companies who understood our mission. But now this was something like you mentioned, was was very mandatory, at least, you know, from a from an optics perspective at the very start. A lot of questions about, you know, how do we do this properly? Um, how do we not do it in a way that just seems to be performative, right? That was another kind of piece that happened. I think Anne over at 23andMe, you know, that was a whole thing where she put out the letter around saying like, hey, guess what? And this this goes into some of the kinds of, you know, trends that have been, that cropped up last year and are still ongoing. But Anne over at 23andMe was just mentioning that, you know, our, you know, senior levels do not reflect the populations that we're saying that we want to serve, right? Their director level and above have no people of color at that point. And and came under fire for that, right? Saying, because once again, this is the, the ongoing conversation and talent. Let's just find the right people or the best people, right? Why do we have to make quotas or talk about this, that, and the third? And so this also was a time for people to start, especially in healthcare, to start exploring historical aspects of exclusion, right? This is not any, this is no longer just a feel good kind of thing. There are literally clear examples of exclusion, of abuse, particularly in the healthcare system in the United States that were swept under the rug and, you know, kind of just got relegated to, you know, that happened decades ago. Well, actually, um, it's still going on and it's actually the root cause of a lot of the things that we're seeing right now. So this is part of, you know, how it affected me, how it affected our work at Onboard Health is really that kind of educational piece um, and kind of getting layers beneath, um, you know, some of those kind of knee-jerk reactions. Well, that's a great and very thoughtful answer. So thank you for sharing that. And I can only imagine what a journey it's been, probably, you know, some good and also a lot of pain, right? As you mentioned, the ripping off of the, the Band-Aid and really letting that water, that pot boil over because it was just such a, a difficult time. 
Abby, let's swing it around to you and let's talk a little bit about what you've seen. You've been a great um, leader at our company in helping to give us the the true north. And um, you've now been joined by Marcia Windross on our team, right, who uh, really focuses internally. You're focused externally on the DE&I piece, working with clients. What shifts have you seen, you know, more receptivity, more, you know, looking at it as less of a bolt on, you know, give us your your take on that. So I'll say um, there definitely is not only more receptivity, but I think because everyone now feels a sense of urgency around this, it's really just looking for guidance on either how to further solidify foundations that have been built, for example, from a corporate DE&I perspective, um, and also just leaning in more heavily to just core mandates around health equity because, I mean, we do work in healthcare, right? And we always talk about being patient-centric, but patient-centricity has never been so important, particularly when you think of it through the lens of DE&I, right? Because it's no longer just about the people that we see in our ads, right? I mean, we know that we work on disease states, partner with clients um, who are looking to reach people who are suffering from conditions for which they've been like, decades long disparities that have never been addressed. So there's now hyper-focus on determining how best to address those. We've seen a lot of companies in our space stand up some multi-million dollar initiatives geared towards addressing those gaps. Um, And I think, you know, this is truly really a time where as we keep telling our clients, there's an opportunity to truly rally around the goal of equity. Because I think, again, going back to COVID, if anything, it's shown us that the health and well-being of our communities, particularly communities of color, has never been more important. I mean, it's critical to not only just making sure that we live in a resilient society, but making sure that we have sustainability for the long haul, right? So for us, that's where we lean into things like our data. We really, truly look to stand up and think through the work through the lens of cultural competency, because we have to make sure that we engage, meet our people where they are, and talk to them in ways that resonate to really truly make sure that we not only bring everybody along, but we truly work towards that goal of equity, right? I think the greatest challenge we're all gonna have is just being patient with ourselves in getting there, right? I keep saying that we can't try to undo 400 years of systemic racism in a week. And in doing this work, there are gonna be mistakes that you make, but that's okay. Because at the end of the day, if you're actually just making the right investments and doing the work, that is actually half the battle. That's a powerful statement. And I know that we've been uh, bold in our commentary about this being a movement, not a moment. But I think that's Mm -hmm. a good reminder. And uh, me personally, I want to make it go as fast as we can. But it is hard and it is undoing a lot before we can really start to do the right things. And I think we are doing the right things or starting to. I do want to lean into that a little bit. And so maybe each of you could just share like a key trend and then maybe an opportunity um, maybe that was missed, right? What, where are we missing one another? What could companies be doing better along the, the rails? So Andre, you know, looking back over the last year, a trend that you've noticed and then an opportunity that's been missed. Yeah, absolutely, Aaron. I mean, it, you know, over the last year, I've really seen, you know, the trends around looking at 
you know, where can you make the most impact um, quickly, right? And so, you know, once again, with the work that we're doing on Onboard Health, really looking at, you know, leadership, right? Who are the decision makers who can then um, kind of, you know, um, you know, look through their, their lenses and things of that nature too, to look at the kinds of products and services that a lot of these companies are building, right? Particularly when it comes to healthcare, um, you know, once again, this is, this is something where, as, as Abby said, like you can't undo, you know, 400, you know, kind of years of racism, but, you know, even in, a, in the last few decades, right, um, this is something to really kind of pay attention to when you have leaders that represent the communities that you're saying that you want to serve, and particularly in healthcare and public health, it's, you know, an expansive group of individuals, right, it's, it's communities across the country, right, it's people who are, you know, suffering from specific, you know, diseases and conditions, right, that oftentimes have been underrepresented communities that are, are suffering from, you know, chronic disease and things of that nature too. And so, you know, it's not necessarily that, that these communities are magically, um, you know, suffering from these issues. It once again gets tied back to decades of exclusion um, and that is not by accident, right? And so, you know, we're looking at things now around, you know, vaccine access and things of that nature too, that is porting into the health equity opportunity. So, all these things I would say is, is, you know, going back to the leadership, who are the decision makers? Who are the people that are saying we need to go into this direction, right? And having that mandate actually happen, right? Oftentimes, you know, we've seen over the years, like a lot of these kind of special interest groups where the onus is oftentimes like on black and brown employees to take the lead on a lot of these kind of initiatives. Um, and that oftentimes is taxing in itself. So, you know, the, the push to really kind of, you know, build more equity lenses and, and diversity into leadership ranks um, has definitely been one of those things. Um, and as far as missed opportunities, I feel like storytelling, this is something that Abby and I really love um, and, and are passionate about is the narrative and the stories that are involved, whether those are the stories of the people in the communities that you're serving, um, the stories of, of community that you're building, you know, with your company, period. Um, but these are the kind of things that really kind of galvanize the, the, the movement piece that we just talked about, right? And I feel like, you know, there was a lot of different, you know, kind of components to, to last year. But, you know, especially now, I think, you know, really kind of doubling down on storytelling and making sure that, you know, you're able to bring to the surface the stories of the individuals that you're hoping to serve um, is an opportunity that, that's in front of us. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Abby, how about you? Key trend, key missed opportunity. I was actually going to, I'm flipping it just because I actually, as Andre was talking, also wrote down storytelling, right? Not only the missed opportunity, but, you know, one of the core tenets of this work that I think folks really need to double down on because one, I think it helps drive understanding. It also helps with perspective, right? But I mean, it's 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 the way that we also build bridges, right? And truly recognize and celebrate the diversity that we have in not only our workplaces, but also our communities, right? And Andre and I come from a, like a culture of that. I mean, there's always a running joke that people from Trinidad and I think to Jamaica, where I think one of Andre's parents is from, we talk about things through the lens of story, right? And there's so much richness in that. And there's so much that you can learn from that. And I do think that there's a lot that um, we can actually benefit from that. I mean, I know like one of the things, Aaron, you've heard me talk about just even in terms of how we talk about our evolution as real chemistry and we talk about our workforce. I mean, we are looking to leverage our own platforms to do the same. And I think bringing forth all of the voices that we have in our organization, I think are key to building our brand, but also just truly 
kind of evangelizing the work that we're doing. So that's just a double click there on that one. And then in terms of trends, the one trend that I think was probably a micro trend pre-George Floyd that has literally exploded is the obsession with, with the HBCU universe. I mean, HBCU has always existed. They, there are historically known, highly credible institutions in our society. And, you know, Andrea and I have are part of a WhatsApp group where we basically were like, that whole universe has been blown up post George Floyd, because in the war for talent, everyone's leaning in on those institutions. And we're not only seeing it in our industry from an agency perspective, but we're also seeing it from our clients. A lot of clients now are really eager to partner with us on internships and co-op programs in partnership with those schools, which I think is a huge opportunity. But the thing is, we need to make sure that we're actually investing in it for the long haul, because we can't just let this be a trend in a moment. We really truly need to be in it for the long term. So let me ask you a follow-up, maybe naive question about that. I have to think it's a double-edged sword for a lot of those historically black colleges and universities where it's like, thanks, you ignored us for how many ever years, right? 150 years. And then this happened and all of a sudden we're your best friend. You know, is there a little bit of, um, you know, I want to give you the middle finger, but I'll help you out or a little bit of a, okay, I'm sorry that it took this to get to this but I'm glad that you're finally waking up. And by the way, there are other resources besides just HBCUs, right? So Andre, thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm over here smiling because I mean, that, that is the case. I mean, and this is, this is not new, right? Um, you know, when there's a need to build some sort of representation um, going to HBCUs um, and then kind of, you know, uh, r- running away once, you know, the quota has been filled, right? And so, you know, now, and, and once again, going back to storytelling, right, each, each of these HBCUs are, have incredible histories, have incredible stories, have incredible scholars that have come out from them. I remember, you know, when I was working on a CDC campaign and I got a chance to visit Clark Atlanta University, just the richness of just, you know, of excellence um, and things of that nature, too, from an academic perspective. And now, you know, we had, you know, a lot of um, Black leaders investing um, in the HBCUs as well, so that it's not just kind of going there just to, to reap the harvest of, of opportunity. So I feel like there definitely has been a little bit of a, a jaded response. Um, but now, you know, we're starting to see things like, you know, data science programs um, that are coming with hefty kind of budgets that are being imported into a lot of these HBCU organizations. I think there's a um, in Atlanta um, there's so much growth that's happening there too, that, that has a sustainability aspect to it. So, you know, I think that that's, that's a big part of it. And then, like you mentioned, Aaron, like, you know, that's just one part of the puzzle, right? Um, you know, I, I went to university of Maryland college park, which is not an HBCU. Right. And so, you know, there, there's an over-indexing oftentimes, and, and that's where, you know, the trust in storytelling is, is such a big opportunity so that you're, you're kind of, you know, collaborating across the board, um, instead of kind of doing some land grabs. Right. So those are some of my initial thoughts for sure. Yeah. Anything additionally, Abby? I mean, the other thing I was just thinking from a trend perspective is again, just in the interest of showing what representation really looks like it's, you know, we've had clients and I've even seen companies do this as well in our industry, 
truly revamp their websites to ensure that from a visual perspective, they're reflective of the world around us, right? Because there have been instances in which, you know, I'd have a conversation with a client who wants to double down on DE&I and they'd admit, if you look at our website, it looks remarkably white, right? And even though like C-suite might have a certain demographic, there are other ways that you can show what representation looks like. Because again, if you're focused on therapeutic areas, you know, for disease and disease states that, you know, disproportionately affect communities of color, you could, there are different ways you can pull that through in your imagery, which is why, you know, one of the things that we've done at Real Chemistry now is to look at partners that we can work with to make sure that we not only diversify the content on our own page, but also have a bank of imagery that we can use to inform client content. Yeah. Andre, did you want to add something? Yeah. And, and just to, to, to jump on that as well, I mean, you know, the aspect of the employer brand, like 3.0, right? <laughs> right. Like that's, that's huge right now. And looking at culture and seeing just a, a massive uptick in, in, you know, kind of partners and companies who are able to do internal work with organizations to do internal equity assessments to, you know, how to better celebrate your employees internally. We talked about that with Juneteenth and turn that into a holiday and, you know, and things of that nature. I mean, it's, it's pride month now, right? And so, you know, doing this well by saying, you know, we might not have all the answers, but we know people who can help us get there, right? And oftentimes that comes straight from um, the employees, um, but also once again, being very careful not to burden your employees, um, you know, to, to make sure that they're the ones that that's always on, on task to make something happen. But this kind of like a, a culture shift um, it has been happening for sure, especially in light of you know, rumblings of a, of a great kind of, you know, resignation, right. That, that kind of popped up, you know, on the news recently, right. You know, now that people are being asked to come back to the office, you know, there's an equity play here too. Now, you know, looking at those kind of things, you know, some people don't have the resources to necessarily like make these kind of big shifts all over again. And so now it really kind of, you know, pours into like how you want to take care of your, your internal culture. Yeah, thank you for getting to that, because that was one of the things I wanted to cover. And I do have two sort of final, more fun questions. But Abby, anything to add to the, you know, employer branding in particular and the culture? And I do feel like I I have to point out, Abby was tremendous with this, but we did have what was called a ERG, Employee Resource Group, that is now a BRG. And during this, they were so invaluable. I mean, they have been as long as they've existed. But there was a part of my heart that broke every time we went to them, because I just knew how heavy it was. And how much, you know, they had their full-time job and then they had to do this on top of it. I felt like the team wanted to be in service and they did a really great job in spite of a very difficult situation. But it is something that's hard, right? It's hard to lean too much on the the BIPOC or, you know, people in your organization that represent a particular flavor of diversity and to constantly go to them. But at the same time, you know, it's hard because you want to have someone that's guiding you and you don't want to step in it, especially when things are so hot and being polarized. Right. So, Abby, I mean, you have perspectives on this because I know you and I talked a lot about it while you were living through it over the last year. I mean, to me, it's I mean, it's, it's really truly a balancing act because, you know, there is merit and value in tapping into your internal resources that you have, um, while also just leaning in not only to experts, but also just more most importantly, I think doing the work, right? Because you need your kind of work, you know, working group, if you will, in the moment to react, respond, and put out in the world what you need to. But then when it comes to doing the ongoing work, I think that's where the like reframe still needs to happen. Um, because I do think, like Andre was saying, that there's still 
an assumption that the representative communities, if you will, are the ones that have to help the majority. But the only way we're truly going to dismantle any of this is if every people, everyone does the work, right? And that's the hardest part. I actually think a lot of people are probably afraid of that because they're afraid what they may actually reveal about themselves. But I mean, the only way you're going to get on the other side of it is going through it. And I think the next six months are going to be quite telling because I think, you know, halfway into this year of action where everyone's been forced to kind of show how they're following through on their commitments, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens come December 2021. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I, I, that is a good lesson, too, because I know from an allyship, you and I have talked about this, that it's I, you sometimes don't want to impose or you don't want to assume, but that has been something I've been told by you and and some of our other colleagues that it's like allyship is one of the greatest things that we can do, right? Is to support and empathize and put our money where our mouth is. And I like that idea of us all doing the work. It really makes a a ton of sense. I do want to shift to something a little bit lighter. Um, Not that this is not, I mean, this is amazing, right? To have this conversation, but I have started asking during the pandemic, this question about if you could have one wish, what would that wish be? And why? So, Andre, I'll ask you and start with your one wish. Yeah, I think, you know, the the one wish that I would have just in the context of, of, of what we've been talking about is, you know, um, especially leaders um, inside of companies, like having, you know, the, the energy around learning and educating themselves on what's happened, right? Some, this is something I've actually been thinking about quite a bit as, you know, the Tulsa, um, Oklahoma massacre has kind of gotten another you know, boost of energy and, and visibility, right? I mean, these are the kind of things that we talk about just across the board when it comes to, you know, what we're what we're dealing with right now, that this is not something that has just happened, right? Not even just over the past few years, but, you know, situations that have tarnished a lot of the history in our country um, that have completely destroyed elements of the ability to move forward. Um, and so there's a juxtaposition of, the premise and the promise of what we talk about a lot here in our country and then like what's actually happening. So that's kind of aligns with all the different things that we're talking about right now. So the the good news is that there's so many different opportunities now to even like, you know, even through film and storytelling, I think there's a number of different things um, that are out there now that are, that are showcasing, you know, what happened in Tulsa and, you know, the opportunities that were, that were presented there and then have, you know, that were wiped out. Um, just kind of doing those kind of things. And as you mentioned, Aaron, you know, it oftentimes is very difficult and, and hard to see, but it also, I feel like puts anybody into a different perspective on how they need to show up, right? It's not just, it feels good or it's a nice to have, but it's literally, this is how we rebuild um, in ways that are important. And so um, that that's that would be my one wish. And the why is just because, you know, it just adds in, you know, additional layers of context. And it also, as Abby mentioned, just reflects back to you, okay, what do I need to be kind of shifting about myself, maybe, you know, and, and not in a demonizing way, but in, in a growth kind of way, right, that we just did not grow up with. So that, that would be my one wish. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's a powerful wish. Abby, what's your one wish? I have the other L to that, which is listening, right? Because you need to both listen and learn. Um, because if anything, the last few election cycles have shown us is the fact that we all live in echo chambers and those echo echo chambers lead us down some seriously dangerous paths. Um, So 
I would say that not only do we need true learning, but we truly do need to listen because it's through listening that we drive understanding and empathy. And if COVID has taught us anything, it is truly how we need to be more empathetic and understanding of each other's perspectives. What a great thought. Uh, and I know myself, I'm always trying to get better at listening, but it's it's a good reminder to continue on that journey. Uh, I'll end with you, Abby, and then we'll get to Andre. And Abby, I have to give props to because as we are prepping, she's been on the show a few times, as we mentioned. So she had answered what was the traditional deserted island album question. And so we decided we're going to evolve that. With the new show comes a slightly different variation of the question. We all just spent the last 15 months, 16 months living through this self-isolation and what was the album that sort of got you through? It was your go-to that made you feel like, okay, I can hold on one more day. Abby, what was yours? So it's it's a combination of an album and a playlist. Um, so right before lockdown, I was in Trinidad for Trinidad Carnival. So I had a playlist from one of the DJs that I had on constant rotation because in my mind, I just wanted to be transported back to the warmth of Trinidad and Tobago of my friends and family. But as a companion to that, I I actually listened to this one acoustic version of a Soka album by one of my favorite artists in Trinidad called Kess. And the album was called We Home. And it was a virtual album that was recorded for the entire Trinidadian and Caribbean diaspora who were all living in, in isolation. So that was kind of like, those are the two things I had on repeat. Well, that's a fitting answer. Uh, Andre, I'm interested to hear yours as well. Yeah. Wow. That night. I need to I need to get that info from you, Abby, because uh, I need the those those vibes in my ears these days too. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it's been really interesting. I mean, I I, I think I, I listened to a lot of um, you know, as I was becoming a lot more mindful about what I was trying to work on and things of that nature, I listened to a lot of kind of jazz um and some of the kind of greats um you know that that just kind of transported you into ways that allowed your mind to just kind of drift off and think and um and to create you know ideal situations for yourself that was huge and then you know just kind of you know one one song that kind of popped up in my head like a long time or for a lot of this past year was um I think the album's called Make Yourself but uh the song is called Drive by Incubus um one of my favorites i love that song yeah that, <laughs> that song just i mean put that on repeat just kind of let, let those words sink in um and and it really kind of drove a lot for me uh over the past several months well i love it and uh it's fun to find a fellow incubus fan because i know there are not oh, yeah. that many of us out there and that is such an amazing song so what a great note to end on i want to thank you both for having like such amazing opinions and helping to show us the way doing the things that you do during these difficult times. This is Aaron Strout. I am the CMO of Real Chemistry and the host of the Real Chemistry podcast. I'm going to have to get used to saying that. Uh, I've been joined by Andre Blackman, who's the founder and CEO of Onboard Health, and then my esteemed colleague, Abby Hayes, who's the practice leader of our DEI client engagement practice. Thank you both so much, and thank you to the listeners for tuning in today. Want more episodes of the Real Chemistry Podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Stitcher app, or iHeartRadio via the Health Podcast Network. Go to realchemistry.com for more info.